Uh, well, the calculations vary drastically, but apparently, on average, by the time your life is over, you will have spent four years of your life eating and about two and a half years of your life cooking. Uh, now, if you're a parent, and you've, especially if you've got teenagers in your home, I'm pretty sure um, you would argue to have those statistics reversed uh, because most of the time, you know, you can lovingly prepare your food for however many hours you like, and then it seems to vanish within a matter of minutes. Um, but if, if you think about four, four years of eating, if you were just eating the whole time, that's a lot of your life, depending on how you, long you live for, of course. Um, but whichever way you think about it, food takes up a significant portion of our lives. For many people, you could say food is a passion, uh, in the last probably 10 years of teaching in a high school, I've been totally weirded out by what I would call the master chef generation of teenagers who use terms like sous vide and quenelle and things I have no idea what they are. Um, it's just a reminder that we live in a place where we have an incredible variety of amazing sorts of foods. Um, so maybe food is a passion for you, but for other people, food uh, can be a bit of an unhealthy obsession. We know we live in an image-driven world. There's many people who are constantly thinking about food, but it's in terms of fad dieting or calorie counting. And we know, sadly, way too many people are plagued with eating disorders. But whatever your relationship with food is, the bottom line is none of us can survive without it. We know God, it, that's part of how he created us. He created us with the need to eat. Without food, we die. We need food to fuel our bodies to sustain our lives. Literally, if you eat, you live. If you stop eating, eventually you'll die. Uh, but it's also interesting to me that uh, God created food uh, with an incredible range of flavours and he gave us um, a, real, a real vast array of them. I sometimes think about um, one of the easiest people to please in our house is Jacob. He seems to sometimes be able to live on a staple diet of apples or tinned peaches or banana smoothies. And uh, this made me think, but well, sometimes he can consume up to, you know, six apples in a day, um, quite a lot of apples. And it made me think about the fact that if God wanted to, he could have just given us an apple and he could have packaged up all the necessary nutrients whatever you need, your iron and protein and calcium and blah, 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 whatever else, in an apple. You could just eat it once a day and be done. But he didn't do that, did he? Uh, he gave us an incredible variety of foods with all sorts of interesting flavours. Uh, and in that, he gave us enjoyment in our food, the ability to taste and to be satisfied by what we eat. So thinking about it like that, I thought there's sort of these two clear functions of food. One, it sustains life. But two, it also satisfies. Now, why all this talk about food? Someone, in, someone will be getting hungry and looking at the communion bread. It's probably bread. Um, but if you were not here last week, the reason we're on to food now, we've just started a series in the Gospel of John. And our goal is to unpack uh, the statements that Jesus makes about himself that start with the phrase, I am. And last week, Melinda gave us insight into the fact that God has a name that he calls himself Yahweh, or if you try to translate it into English, I am. And so now, every time we come to one of these I am statements that are scattered throughout the Gospel of John, we know when Jesus says I am, that's not just part of the English phrase. He's actually making a clear claim to deity. He's saying that he is God. 
And then along with that, as we look closely at each of the statements, we're going to find that he is revealing what God is like through each of these statements. And today we begin with one of them. And it's pretty funny because he says, I am the bread, Um, which, you know, if you were going to think of a descriptor, a way to describe yourself, I wouldn't start with bread at the top of my list. But that's what Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so as we look at this statement, we, we want to consider this claim and think about what does it tell us about who God is and what He's like. And as we're thinking about it, I want us to think about bread, not as just that nice sourdough roll, which you might occasionally consume. I want us to equate bread with food because in first century Israel, when Jesus made this statement, bread was not just a nice breakfast or lunch option, you know, that you could choose instead of opting for cereal or a salad. Bread was literally your staple diet. So in essence, bread meant life. Bread meant survival. If you have bread, you eat it and live. If you don't have bread, you will die. So thinking about this and Jesus' statement, we're thinking about food that will sustain and satisfy or bread that will sustain and satisfy life. Now, one other background kind of thing to keep in mind before we launch into some Bible passages together is a little bit about the author's intent. And uh, Melinda spoke to us about this last week. But again, if you missed it, John's gospel is quite unique because as a writer, he explicitly says what his goal is in writing his book, which authors don't always do. We find it in John chapter 20. Uh, In verse 30, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs. He's written a whole book of these signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in in these book. But these ones, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, on the surface, uh, I could read that and think, well, yes, Okay, great. John's writing this gospel. He wants everyone who reads it to believe Jesus is God. And when they believe, they'll get their eternal life. And in terms of shallow thinking, we could sort of think, you know, believe in Jesus and then bam, you get your ticket to heaven when you die. But what John wants for every reader is deeper than that. And one way I found really helpful to understand this is um, I'm totally not a Greek scholar, so I'll potentially muck this up. You can talk to Melinda afterwards and get the real down low. But I understand that in Greek, as the New Testament would have, would have been written, there are these two different words that can be used for life. One of them, bios, is literally just kind of referring to your physical existence, your life. But the other one, which looks and reads something like Zoe, uh, refers not just to your physical life, but to your spiritual life. And it carries with it this kind of more holistic meaning, the idea of quality of life, not just physically existing, uh, but actually flourishing spiritually. And so interestingly, it's the second term, not the first one just about physical existence, but that more holistic term that John uses here and frequently right throughout his gospel. So does John just want every reader to go to heaven when they die, get an extended physical life? No, it's something deeper. He wants every reader to find that true fullness of life, fullness of spiritual life to flourish and to be really, truly, spiritually satisfied. So we'll keep that in mind as we come to this statement 
about um, Jesus. I am the bread of life. And to do this, this morning, we're going to consider three bread stories. And I'd be really keen for you to follow them with me. So if you can access a Bible text in some manner, uh, we're going to start in the Old Testament. Bread story number one comes from Exodus 16. And we're going to start reading at verse 1. So Exodus 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. Sounds like a dangerous place. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Uh, So we're launching in in the middle of nowhere here. The context of this story, hopefully you might be a little bit familiar with it. The Israelites have just experienced that miraculous exit out of Egypt where they'd been enslaved under Pharaoh. And they now are, for the very first time in several hundred years, tasting freedom. Now, if you just got out of slavery and that kind of oppression, I don't know what you'd be doing. Probably some sort of singing, dancing, celebrating. We know they were doing that early on, but it seems like by this point, um, some days later, the singing and dancing has worn off because verse two, it says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Verse three, the Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now that sounds to me like a really bad case of the hangries. Don't know if you ever have hangries in your house. We have them in our house, a little bit of grumpiness when people get a bit hungry. Um, They're hungry and instead of looking to their leaders for a solution, they just grumble against them. And it sounded a little bit to me like when we were kids, Um, And if we were really hungry, if we said, oh, I'm starving, we would always get a little quiet word from one of the parents about, no, you're not actually starving. And there are people in the world who are starving. We we do not use this phrase. And I thought, you know, um, probably the Israelites needed a little word, parental sort of word here as well, because they seem to have inflated their memories of what their time in Egypt was really like. Um, painting it as a a really beautiful picture, as though they were just sitting around feasting all day. Not really sure that that's what their lives were like as slaves, but that's how they paint it in this state of hangriness. Um, Interestingly, God's response is not the kind of parental response that I might have given them. Look in verse four. Uh, It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they follow, will follow my instructions. Verse 5, on the sixth day, they are to prepare what, what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. God, in gracious kindness, promises them a miraculous daily provision. He's literally going to send them bread from heaven every day. Um, they call it manna, which loosely translate to what is it? I thought that's a pretty good name. Like if you had bread appearing on your front lawn every morning, you might also call it, what is it? It's quite strange. Um, but, and it's got this really kind of unique uh, shelf life. You, you can't hoard it because it literally has one day shelf life. If you try to keep it longer, it will um, go bad. Other than on the sixth day, quite nice. Um, so that you can rest and have a Sabbath on the seventh day. Your sixth day bread gets, has a two day shelf life. That's some excellent cooking, divine cooking there, isn't it? 
That's how it works. Uh, There's a funny phrase in there. God says, in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Uh, Now, as a school teacher, I know people are not really all that keen on tests. doesn't matter as a teacher how much you try to tell them, you know, what the the purpose of the test is and why it's for their good and their overall learning. Uh, Test just always has a sort of negative ring to it. Um, And we could think it sounds like God's trying to trip them up. But here, that word test, I think, carries a, a meaning more like to strengthen by putting under strain. What's God doing in testing them? His goal is not to trip them up, it's to strengthen them so that they would learn to rely every day on His gracious provision. That's why they can't stash it up for a few weeks. They have to collect it every day, trust that every day the bread will still be there, that God will keep providing for them on a daily daily basis. Now, interestingly, there's a, there's a verse later in Deuteronomy which we know that the context of that comes about 40 years later when the Israelites are finally standing on the threshold of entering the promised land. And at that point, God has Moses recount to the people some of their history, little memory jogger, and his commandments as a reminder. And when he speaks about the manna, the bit of the history, you know, where they were given this manna, he says this, it's in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, He, that is God, humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So God's provision of manna in the desert, yes, it was about physical sustenance, but it was always about more than that. God knew they needed more than that. Uh, What did they need? They needed to learn dependence on God to sustain and to satisfy them, not just physically, but spiritually as well. So that brings us to bread story number two. And uh, before I launch into the second bread story, I'm going to pause briefly for a poem. Every Sunday morning needs a good poem. Uh, And this poem is, Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as if they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Now I'm hoping straight away, unless anyone's been living under a rock, that most people know that these are not my words or my poem. Uh, These are the words of Paul McCartney and they're not a poem, they are a song made very famous some years ago by the Beatles. And I'm hoping that as soon as I started speaking those words, most of you could hear the tune in your head. And if I put you on the spot and asked you to stand up and keep singing the rest of the song, many of you could do that. You know the lyrics and the tune. But imagine for a moment that it's not 2022. What if it were 2122? What if it were 100 years later? Would it still get the same reaction? I guess it depends what you think about the quality of the Beatles and how how long uh, they will remain famous. Uh, but I'm guessing it probably the reaction wouldn't be quite as strong in 100 years' time. Then let's go, what if it were 4022? What if it were 2,000 years from now? I'm guessing it would be like that funny movie called Yesterday, which I confess I fell asleep in, so I sort of lost a bit of the storyline. But the bit I remember was in the movie, this guy, you know, performs works by the Beatles and no one knows them anymore and they, and they think that they're his uh, own unique work. I'm guessing it would probably be a little bit bit like that if it was 2,000 years' time. Uh, what was the purpose of bread story number one? What I want to do is get the tune of the Exodus playing in our heads because 
For us, hundreds of years after Jesus walked the earth, we just don't have the same familiarity and associations with the events of the Exodus that the Israelites in Jesus' time had. It just doesn't quite ring the same. We don't know the tune quite so well. We can't really sing the rest of the lyrics. Um, So now, as we get to bread story number two, this is from John's Gospel. Hopefully we have that tune from bread story number one playing clearly in our minds and it will help us to understand the depth of John's meaning in the way he tells the story, hopefully a little bit more like his original readers might have. They were a little bit more familiar with that Exodus story than us. So let's turn now. Bread story number two is from John 6 and beginning in verse 1. John 6 verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. So this is the point of Jesus' ministry where his healing miracles were becoming very well known. And so literally large crowds, thousands of people are now flocking after him. Verse 3, Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, I'm not good with geography, but I understand apparently this particular geographic region is not particularly mountainous. Uh, But interestingly, John uses that term to describe where Jesus is sitting. He says he's sitting on a mountain. I think there's already an Exodus tune playing here. Uh, We know after the Israelites get freed out of Egypt that Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God. So using that descriptor is already kind of kicking off some Exodus imagery. Uh, The other thing John notes is that it's Passover time. And of course, that's the festival in which the Israelites every year remembered how God had miraculously delivered their people out of slavery in Egypt and sustained them in the desert by feeding them manna. So this is actually the time of year when they would remember that ache of what is it like to live in slavery and under oppression and then to joyfully celebrate the miraculous rescue of God. Uh, Going then to verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, just like in the previous bread story, here's another test. Now, Jesus is testing Philip. Uh, Is he just setting him up for some kind of inevitable failure. It says he already knew what he was going to do. I don't think so. I think it's like the other test. I think his goal is to strengthen Philip and the other disciples by putting them under some sort of strain. Here's a problem. Try and solve it. Uh, Jesus is going to strengthen Philip's trust when he sees how Jesus can respond to this impossible situation. So verse 7. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. This is an impossible situation without a workable solution. I like Philip. He's kind of saying, you know, this is ridiculous. He's a bit of a math, math mathematician. He's done his maths and he just goes, this is not logical. Um, of course, he's calculating based on normal human resources. Again, I'm hearing this tune of bread story number one. What have we got here? Not a couple million, which is what you had in the Exodus, but we've got a couple of thousand people out in 
not a desert, but a remote place, and they're hungry, it's time to eat, and there's no food land nearby to pick up any groceries. So you've got this impossible situation in terms of feeding a whole lot of hungry people. It should sound very, very much like that first bread story. Going to verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Now, I like Andrew as well. He's resourceful. He's not giving up. He checks around to look for a solution. Uh, But he comes up with a measly packed lunch for one, which, of course, further just emphasises the problem, the impossibility of the situation that Jesus has posed to his disciples. Then, verse 10, Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Now, I know this has got nothing to do with the miracle, but I think this bit's a miracle also. Um, If you're not a high school teacher and you've never had to do a fire drill and try to make one class of teenagers sit down on the lawn, um, you might not recognise the miracle. But seriously, there's 5,000 men. That means if you count the women and children as well, there's potentially a whole lot more thousands of people. And somehow there's no microphones and loudspeakers. Somehow they get this whole massive crowd sitting down on the lawn. I think that's quite astounding. But anyway, the actual miracle is coming. It's in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. In the middle of nowhere, with nothing to eat, Jesus miraculously provides bread from heaven. And at that point, those Exodus melodies should be just ringing loud and clear. This is so like what God had done for the Israelites in the desert. Verse 12, John notes that they all had enough to eat. Uh, Interestingly, Matthew, when he recounts exactly the same incident, he says it this way. He says, they all ate and were satisfied. Not only were they sustained by this bread physically, but they were somehow satisfied also by this incredible miracle. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So it's not just you and I hearing these Exodus melodies. The people are hearing the melodies loud and clear. They're in the wilderness. There's nothing to eat. And there's this one who's somehow providing bread, literally like it's straight out of heaven for them. Now, in Jesus' day, many Jews would have actually... Different, different method of learning in those days, would have memorised Genesis through Deuteronomy. So they would also have a few things at their mental fingertips that we might not have. Uh, like there's a promise it, written in Deuteronomy 18. They probably knew quite well. I definitely don't know this one from memory. Uh, where Moses says, The Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. 
So there's this promise which they have not really yet seen fulfilled. And so in a sense, these Israelites, they're waiting for the next Moses, the next one leader like Moses, who's going to get them out of freedom and out from under oppression. And lo and behold, here's this guy, Jesus, miraculously producing bread for the crowd in the middle of nowhere. And they're hearing the Exodus melodies and they're thinking, this is the guy. This, this has to be the one that the promise is written about, the, the, the prophet like Moses. Imagine what someone like that could do for them. They could get freedom, not just from their hunger. If this guy's the one like Moses, they could get freedom from Roman occupation. They could get the kind of freedom they're really looking for. But Jesus is not a king who's come to simply alleviate their physical hunger or even to just move their, remove their social oppression. He can do all of that, but he had come to do far more than that. And so we're told at that point he withdraws. Uh, that brings us to bread story number three. And it's very close by. We just got to scoot down a few verses, uh, down to verse 25. Now we're skipping a story in between, which makes it slightly confusing, uh, but it's probably one you know. In between bread story number two and three, uh, there's a storm, you might recall, and Jesus does some walking on water, uses a bit of miraculous, unorthodox transportation. And that the next day causes a bit of confusion for the crowd. They come to him, says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, because he's walked back over the water. They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Uh, they know when, when, the, when Jesus and the disciples turned up, there was one boat and they saw Jesus hide away and the disciples leave on their own and they know there's only one boat. Uh, it's logical that Jesus had to walk. And so it's just confusing to them. How has he possibly gotten over there? Um, so they asked the question, when did you get here? Of course, Jesus is interested in far more significance than the timing or method of his arrival. So although he seems like he's answering their question, uh, he's, he's not really answering their question at all because he's interested in why they're still following after him. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. When John writes of Jesus' miracles, he refers to them as signs. Uh, that's an interesting thing about his gospel because he's highlighting the fact that they're not merely supernatural physical acts meeting physical needs like hunger for food. They're actually these incredible signs that are pointing to Jesus' deity. They're revealing who he is and what he's like. And Jesus, in saying this to them, is saying they've missed the point. They want their physical needs met. They want an earthly deliverer to solve their immediate problems. But he's come for more than that. He wants them to look at who the sign is pointing to. And so he says, verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Jesus, I think, is urging them to look beyond just their physical needs to their deeper spiritual needs. And their deepest hunger, their deepest dissatisfaction was not physical and it wouldn't be met by the kind of rescue that they were looking for because greater than their problem of living under Roman oppression was the fact they lived under the oppression of a religious system that was driven by a list of laws, one in which they were led to believe that spiritual peace and satisfaction would come 
if they could just meet God's list of requirements. Jesus exposes that this system that they're under has been warped. They've misunderstood. And so when they ask in verse 28, what must we do to do the work God requires? He answers, Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There is no list of requirements. God is not waiting for them to do something, to get something right. He is simply asking them to believe in the one, Jesus, whom God has sent. And it's like at this point, they almost get it. They're so close because they think Jesus is the sent one, the new Moses. So verse 30, they ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're kind of close, aren't they? And yet I was a little bit aghast at this response. They're asking for another sign. They were just, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and had this miraculous feeding. And now they're asking for something more. But we know manna was provided every day in in, in Moses' time. Perhaps they're thinking, you know, well, some everyday bread, that'd, that'd be a good sign to prove that Jesus is this new Moses. That'd be kind of handy, wouldn't it? Uh, In that sense, they're still missing who Jesus is and the far greater significance of what he's come to do for them, which is well beyond just some everyday bread. So Jesus pushes them further. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Back at the Exodus, it wasn't just about Moses, a human leader, providing physical sustenance. It was about God creating a relationship with His people where they would daily depend on Him. And it wasn't just for their physical sustenance and satisfaction. It was for their deeper spiritual sustenance and satisfaction. And so it is with Jesus. He's not just a human leader come to merely meet their physical needs. He's God come to meet their far deeper spiritual needs. And so he says, verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Kind of bread God is offering is better than what you're imagining. Not temporary sustenance for just this one isolated group of people, but fullness of life for the world. Verse 34, sir, they said, Always give us this bread. And verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Really interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, I am the one who gives the true bread. He says, I am the bread. It's kind of a funny statement, but I think he's emphasising to them that he's not just God's agent, he is God. He has not just come to provide a rescue, he is the rescue. And it's no surprise that of those two Greek words for life, the one that appears here is the one which refers not just to physical life, 
but to our physical and spiritual life. It's both in verse 33 when he says that the bread of God who gives life to the world and here where he says, I am the bread of life. It is not about mere physical existence, about having your physical life extended. It is about finding true sustenance and satisfaction. I just want us to finish by thinking a little bit about what it means for us that Jesus is the bread of life. To be honest, I've struggled with this quite a lot. It just feels quite abstract. What does that mean? How does it impact our everyday lives? Um, I guess particularly because here in Australia, physical hunger for food is not something we really can identify with that well. Most of us, most of the time, are very well fed. Sure, we say we're hungry, but I don't think we kind of know the sort of hunger that potentially some people in Jesus' day did and some people around our world are experiencing right now. Uh, but this need to eat for daily sustenance still makes sense to us, doesn't it? Um, because most of us eat a few times a day uh, and it takes time. It's something that we invest in on a daily basis. So we understand that eating is not a one-off. You can't eat once and then be done. You have to continually eat every day to be sustained and satisfied. It's a daily requirement. And that makes me think about that in a sense. Sometimes we think about believing in Jesus to give us life and we think, oh yeah, I did that quite some time ago, tick, done. Um, but there's a sense which to find fullness of life requires a daily believing in Jesus for life, not just this one-off uh, kind of ticked off the list. It requires this daily trust in Jesus to find true fullness. Uh, though we might not go physically hungry too often. I think probably in Australia, we identify with all sorts of other hungers that we're constantly trying to fill and maybe find harder to fill than maybe our physical need for food. You think about the way we sometimes hunger for significance or hunger for power. Um, we often look to fill those sorts of things up from our work. Uh, we sometimes hunger for relaxation or enjoyment. And so we look to some kind of recreational pursuits to kind of fill those hungers. Uh, we have other physical desires like for clothes or furniture or other possessions. We sometimes try to fill that hunger with retail therapy or some kind of consumerism. And then we have maybe slightly deeper heart hungers. We want to be known, we want to be valued, we want to be included. And so we look to fill that, those hungers often through our human relationships. Now, we know all those things. That's part of how we're wired as well. They are necessary hungers. And um, God is our provider. He cares about all those needs. And He does give us good gifts to meet those things. Uh, just like Jesus actually did provide for their physical hunger. He gave them the bread. Um, God cares about those things. But of course, in every person, there's this deeper hunger and deeper yearning that needs filling beyond those immediate, more physical, literal things. We know every heart has a yearning, this yearning of the soul that needs to be met. And it doesn't matter how much you shop or how much you work or how much you relax or how much you hang out with your friends. You cannot meet that deep soul yearning because it's a spiritual one. Um, I was thinking about, you know, um, every time I try to teach um, I, I want to learn the lesson more than, more than anyone else. Um, this is one that's going to take me a lifetime to learn. But in these last couple of weeks, um, 
how am I, how am I trying to learn this lesson about Jesus being the bread of my life? Uh, well, in the, the last couple of weeks, probably the, the most pressing thing is um, my pregnancy. And <laughs> in these last couple of weeks, I've encountered a couple of complications. And um, that's why it's, people are very polite. No one's yet told me that I look like a beached whale, but I feel like a beached whale. So go ahead if, um, if, <laughs> if you need to <laughs> tell me that. Um, but as a result, the, the appearance is not the funniest thing. That the, Probably the most pressing thing is I've just been in a lot of pain that I can't relieve and that the doctor can't relieve. And I would really like to have that physical pain alleviated. Um, but when I was thinking about that, I thought, oh, is that, is that the thing that weighs heaviest? And of course it's not, because there's always those deeper aches and pains, aren't there? Um, if I was really honest, what are the, the deeper aches and pains? Um, they're the things that arise from all my natural doubts and fears. You know, things like, because it's a bit complicated, what, what if something's wrong with the baby? Um, what if I get COVID? What if Brad gets COVID, just, you know, just before the baby's due? How am I going to deal with that? What if, what if when I stop working, I really miss my work? Um, what if my stepkids really dislike the baby, having a baby in the house? Um, all of those sorts of things. What if I'm a terrible mum? They're kind of the, the deeper heartaches that you can't just, there's no quick fix. It doesn't matter what assurance a doctor will give me or what encouragement anyone offers me because ultimately those deeper heartaches are connected to deeper spiritual longings, those things that actually can only be met as I deepen my trust in God. Because I know um, what, what if, any of those things might happen, any of those things might go wrong. Um, but as I cultivate a deeper trust in God, what I want to know and what I want to believe on a daily basis is that He will be enough. He will sustain me. He will meet my needs. And somehow amongst it all, whatever happens, that He will give me true fullness of life. The kind of fullness of life I can't control or create myself. Now, how do you do that on a daily basis? Um, I find that really challenging. Um, I have to confess, like growing up, I probably um, grew up with a, a very sort of shallow idea of what does it look like to trust Jesus? Well, so long as you say your prayers and you read your Bible every day, um, that will be enough. Uh, but I've, I've been really encouraged this year in our gospel group, we've been working methodically through a series of practices um, that are designed to help us follow the way of Jesus. And I think they're really helpful in terms of that active, ways to actively daily trust Jesus to give life. Um, and they're not new. They're just disciplines that have been valued by the church for hundreds of years. Um, but they're very often overlooked, I think, in our fast-paced and quick-fix sort of society. And so some of the things that we've been encouraged to cultivate are rhythms such as simplicity and generosity, solitude and silence, community, um, this month is the um, practice of rest, lovely. Um, but other upcoming ones are fasting and lament, silence, oh, I said silence already, celebration, patience and submission, meditation and prayer, worship, humility, service. And so the list goes on. And though I know that it's going to take me a lifetime to really learn to live in these rhythms, being encouraged to more intentionally cultivate them in my daily practices has already helped to deepen my daily trust in God and my reliance on Him to cause me to flourish in life, both in the big things and the little things.
But maybe there's some food for thought there for you as well. Uh, Finally, just thinking about our responsibility as a community. It's not just to have that bread of life for ourselves, but it is to offer that bread of life in Jesus to the world. Um, I was alarmed by the latest email from Baptist World Aid where they highlighted the statistic that currently 30% of the world's population is facing food insecurity. That seemed pretty high to me, um, but they cited some of the reasons in relation to conflict, wars, um, COVID and the impact of that, um, other things that are causing that food insecurity. And the other alarming statistic is that every 11 seconds a child is dying from malnutrition, which given how much food we have in the world, is that's just still a horrifying statistic to me. How do we respond to that? I think just as God met people's physical needs, He didn't just say, oh, no bread for you. I'll give you something spiritual and better. He gave them the bread, right? He fed the hungry. And um, there's verses like in James 2 verse 15 that challenge us. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? So I think we've always got this weighty responsibility about, um, you know, how are we doing something about feeding the world, as it were. And there's, Baptist World Aid have beautiful opportunities online, different ways that we can give. Um, Of course, we know that there's local opportunities with Baptist Care as well to give, you know, give food to people who don't have it on a daily basis. Uh, But then as far as what we do as a community amongst our community, I think we have that spiritual responsibility as well. Uh, We know our world, our immediate community, but the world at large has that deeper spiritual hunger that desperately needs meaning. Um, I guess that one's harder to meet, isn't it? You can't do it with the click of a button or by putting your credit card in. Um, Meeting that spiritual need takes time and personal investment. To meet people's spiritual needs requires us to listen such that we are the ears, the hands and feet of Jesus, to move beyond the surface things to deeper things. That can be hard to do. It requires us to be vulnerable and honest. Um, We need to forge friendships where we might not have otherwise chosen to, unlikely people. Often it means we need to offer hospitality or just take those opportunities for those deeper, more meaningful conversations. I hope that's some food of thought for you as we think about Jesus being the bread of life. How will we eat and live? And then how will we offer that bread so that others might eat and live as well? I'm just going to pray and then Melinda's going to lead us in a time of communion. Our God, you are so mysterious and so beyond what our minds can really wrap around. We're so blessed and so privileged that um, although we, this side of heaven never fully understand the mystery, that you do reveal yourself to us, uh, that you teach us your name and then you teach us who you are and what you're like. Thanks, Lord, this morning for helping us to think about this idea of bread or food. And I just ask that even as we go about our eating today and in the week to come, that uh, you would keep pressing these ideas into our hearts and minds Uh, that you would expose the things that we look to to fill our hunger and that you would encourage us about those ways that we can find that greater, deeper satisfaction in you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.